Good morning, Digital Cathedral family. Glad to have you with me this Sunday morning. Hope you've had a wonderful week. And even more than that, I hope you're anticipating a wonderful week that is in front of you. However, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we're going to rejoice today and be glad in everything that he's going to reveal to us today, everything he's going to show us. We're going to, we're going to hit some things today that I think are going to challenge you just a little bit. If you have any of your old thinking uh, still attached to your, to your mind, to your memory. If you were with me last Sunday morning, you remember we talked about that famous discussion that Jesus had in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. If you have not looked at that teaching, I, I highly recommend that you go back and look at it because we took this thing of the evangelical born again and we just took it apart and reassembled it and looked at what Jesus really meant when he said, you must be born again. Now this morning. I want to carry just a little bit further into John chapter 3. Remember this year we're kind of working our way through some of the highlights of uh, the Gospel of John, not verse by verse or even chapter by chapter. I just want to hit some of the highlights that we've, um, that we've known or thought we knew for most of our life. So I want to work a little bit further this morning into uh, John chapter 3, and I want to talk about a verse that probably was the first verse that you ever memorized when you began to follow Christ. It's a verse that is so well known that we think we know everything that is involved in the verse. But again, I want to take it apart. I want to look at it. I want to examine it. And of course, I'm talking about John chapter 3 and verse 16. Most of you here at the Digital Cathedral, if I were a betting man, I would bet that you probably could quote that verse by heart. <clears throat> most, every, most every believer, most every, every follower of Christ can quote John 3:16 because we heard it in the very beginning right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Let me tell you the traditional way that we've looked at that verse. We've looked at that verse and it's been drilled into us from this angle, that God loves us enough to offer Jesus on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. It's said to be a loving um, offer. It's an invitation. He put Jesus on the cross so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. If you accept the offer, and only if you accept the invitation, then that's when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your personal Lord and Savior, and you are saved from judgment. And that is your ticket to make sure that you never go to hell. But wait, folks, that's not all. Not only do you get a pass out of hell, you get a ticket straight into heaven when you die. So that's, that's what the evangelical church calls the good news. Um, whosoever believes in him would not perish. However, if you don't believe in him, if you don't accept him, then you're going to perish Never examined parish. We just automatically were told and accepted the fact that meant that you would spend eternity in hell. So when you look at that verse from that perspective, that God makes an offer, God gives an invitation, but in order for you to cash in, you have to do certain things. There are certain hoops you have to jump through. And if you do, then you hit pay dirt. You get the payoff. But if you don't, then it's your fault and you're gonna spend eternity separated from God. That's called good news. I don't see too much good in that. In fact, I would say it's more like an offer from the Godfather rather than God the Father. So I don't know what church you grew up in, but you probably encountered an offer from the Godfather rather than from God the Father and had no idea what that verse was really getting at, just accepted what you'd always been told. Is that verse really a threat? Is that verse really a threat to what happens if you fail to love God back with his unconditional love towards you? You were told he loves you unconditionally. However, however, there's a condition to that unconditional love. You have to receive it. You have to accept it. You have to believe it. So let I, I, I want to I just hold it right there for a minute. Because if we look at that verse in context, that's hardly what it's saying. I want you to notice a couple things about John chapter 3, verse 16. There's no mention of the cross. 
There's no mention of a sacrifice for sin. There's no mention of accepting Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. There's no mention of heaven. There's no mention of hell in that verse. The church baked all of those things into that verse. And over a period of time, probably since the turn of the century it started, of, of the 1900s, the church began to bake in certain, certain um, unchallenged, what they felt were truths into that verse so that we put the cross in there, we put the sacrifice for sin, we put accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We certainly see heaven in that verse. We see hell in that verse. And all of that was read into it by Christians and we never questioned it. We never dissected that verse, never took it apart, never heard a teaching on it other than from that perspective that I just pre presented to you. Honestly, it, it really hit stride in the 50s with Billy Graham. And let me tell you how it broke out. Billy Graham worked that verse to death, the, the verse with Nicodemus. He put everybody in Nicodemus's position and, and said, you must be born again. And it worked marvelous for him. I mean, he would preach that message in stadiums and people would, would pour out of the stadiums to be born again, to accept Jesus as their personal savior. And it was so, it was so successful. Here's, how, here's what happens. When there's something successful going on, pastors jump on board. It was so successful and he popularized it so much that that became the chief verse of evangelism in the 50s. So every pastor, every church, every denomination picked up on it and, and made it the chief verse on a Sunday morning or over and over again to quote it, to bring that meaning that there's the cross in there, there's the sacrifice for sin, there's the heaven, there's hell, there's accepting Jesus as your personal savior. Honestly, John 3.16 is a continuation of the talk that he had with Nicodemus. So I wanna, I wanna look at that verse this morning. And when I'm done, I want you to make a shift in your understanding of John chapter 3, verse 16, and don't let anybody ever hoodwink you into thinking all of that is contained in that verse. I'm gonna take that verse apart for you this morning, and I'm gonna help you to get some understanding. I feel it's my obligation to do that at the Digital Cathedral because it's one of those verses that still hold cobwebs in the back of our mind that, man, maybe I, you know, maybe I need to pray the prayer, I need to be born again. There's a lot of theology, a lot of Arminian theology, a lot of Calvinistic theology wrapped up in that verse. So let's look at that verse this morning. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's all about the love that God has for the world. The word love there is the word agape, you know that. That is a one-way love. Agape love does not require anything on the one that, that it's sent to. It doesn't, it, it has no condition, has no limitation, has no stipulation upon it, does not need a response, does not need to be received, it just is. God so agape the world, the cosmos, the entirety of creation, that he sent his only son. Right? But I want, you to, I want you just to, first of all, to see that there's no condition on this love that God sent. I think you're far enough into the digital cathedral and on the, uh, the, the secret place on Wednesday nights that you have a firm understanding of unconditional love. So that's the love that God demonstrated in John chapter 3, verse 16, the very first part of it. I wasn't looking for a response, wasn't looking for a reception, wasn't looking for man to do anything. It's a, just a blanket statement of what God did. In fact, in, in um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, let, let me just read this. God saw that everything that he had made, and it was very good. It was very good. So the evening and the morning were, were the sixth day. Let me just mark. I'm going to go over in that one in just a minute. So he, he said everything that he created was very good. It's never, it's never recorded anywhere that, John ever, that God ever changed his mind about what he created. He said not only is it good, he looked at everything that he, that he created and said it's very good. He created it. And, and he made that statement, this is, this is the amazing thing, he made that statement in, in light of the fact that he knew that man in his blindness and in his ignorance would screw it up. He still said it's very good. He knew that man would mess it up. He knew that man 
would, would get jacked up in his mind, that he would begin to get a distorted view of what God did. God knew all of that would happen. When he said, it is very good, he knew the end from the beginning. And what he declared was not just something he observed at the beginning. What he, what he, what he declared is how he saw the very end. Very good. Never changed his mind. There's absolutely no scripture that says that God changed his mind about what he created as being very good. God knew what would happen. So he set, as he always does, he sets the end from the beginning. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, you're going you're gonna to get this verse memorized because I read it a lot because there's so much packed into this. In Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 4, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's a very inclusive verse. He chose us. Not talking to just the Ephesian Christians. That's a, that's a universal. He chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. He didn't choose just Ephesian Christians. Come on. That... That's a guy threw that up to me and said, well, I was just written to the Ephesian Christians. So you're telling me the only people that he ever selected were the Ephesian Christians before the foundation of the world. It's an inclusive verse. All right, let's read a little bit more. I, what I want you to see is this love that God demonstrated toward the world that had no condition. No condition on Ephesians 1.4. It's just agape love demonstrated in action in choosing us. Verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, in the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. He's saying, here's the end. In the fullness of the time, I'm going to gather into Christ all things because, Ephesians 1.4, I put them there to begin with. I don't care how you wander off in your mind and your actions. At the, the end of the story, the end of the story was set from the beginning of the story. Verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, watch, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He includes everybody in that. He includes everybody in verse 10. He includes everybody in verse 4. I could go through that first chapter of Ephesians and you can see how inclusive God was. Here's the point. John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world. He set it in motion from the very beginning. And, and we're going to take it apart just a little bit by little bit. But I, I, I want to emphasize the love part because if you don't get that down, you're going you're to leave a crack in your mind that maybe there's a loophole to this. But there's no loophole. I'm not sure who, how we got out of those verses. I'm not sure how we got it out of Ephesians 1, 4, 10, 11 verse 5, verse 6. I'm not sure how we got that. There are just a, a very few people going to fall through the crack and make it and the rest are condemned forever. It's because of how we've handled that verse. I don't see how we can look at it that way, especially in light of the next verse of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 17 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but He sent His Son into the world so that the world through Him might be saved. Now that word might, this, this, this word frustrates me, aggravates me, puts, puts a godly indignation rising out of me when I see that word might because that was always used to create a little bit of doubt. He might, he might, but he, there's no guarantee on this. That word might should not have been there. In, in, in fact, I made a little list of some of the better known Bibles that did not put might in there because it never belonged. It's one of those words that the translators put in in subservience to the church so that you could have you'd have to come to the church to find out what you should do so that it's not a might anymore it's a done deal but there's something you got to do he might he might be saved but you can't be sure of it might should have never been in there it just frustrates me because of the doubts it puts in people's minds in fact the NIV the NLT the Brian study bible the NASB which most people think is probably the better translation we have, the Christian Standard, the Contemporary English Bible, the Good News Translation, God's Word Translation, they all eliminate the word might. I love the way Francois de Toy in the Mirror Bible. If you don't have a Mirror Bible, you ought to get one. It's a work in progress. But Francois has done a wonderful job in coming through uh, 
the scriptures and really highlighting what they mean. Here's how, here's how he translated John chapter 3, verse 18. God had no intention to condemn anybody. He sent his son not to be the judge, but to be the savior of the world. Let me read that again because Francois just nails down the spirit of that verse. God had no intention to condemn anybody. He sent his son not to be the judge, but to be the savior of the world. Now, let, let me just hit a couple of verses. The Father, the, the day of judgment is over. Everything was judged at the cross. There's no, there's no more judgment. I know what they told you down at the church house, that there's going to be a day you stand before God and he's going to judge you. He's going to, he's going to look at everything that you ever did and he's going to give you thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up. You go through the pearly gates, thumbs down, you're separated. That's the end of the story. There's no repercussion. There's nothing more you can do about it. You can't help it. You are totally going to be tortured and burned in fire. That is such a lie of religion. Watch this. John chapter 17 and verse 4 says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. What, what was the mission of Jesus? Jesus' response to John chapter 3, verse 17, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Jesus' declaration of that was it is finished. It's a done deal. I, I, have, I have finished my job of saving the world. Two times, John calls Jesus the Savior of the world. And I want you to see that in, in John chapter 16, or John chapter 3, verse 17, that the mission that the Father sent the Son to do, which is to save the world, was fully accomplished. In fact, Jesus said, I finished the work which you have given me to do. John 17, toward the end of his ministry. Then in John chapter 4, John has such good, good insights on this stuff. In John chapter 4 and verse 34, he says this, my food, in case you had any doubts, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. What was he sent to do? What, what is it? Um, is it Luke 10, 19 or 19, 10? I can't remember which it is. It says that the son came to seek and to save, two parts, seek and to save that which was lost. See, all we were ever taught is going to seek the lost, but you got to do something for him to find you. No, he came to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. So there's 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 no there's no judgment from God coming on this. There's no there's no God you know the only judgment from God is that you're judged righteous. That is the judgment of God because of the cross. I know what it says in John chapter 3 verse 18. Let's look at this cuz this this has tripped up a lot of people. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Right? Here's the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So what, you're, what we've been told about verse 18 and 19, that if you don't believe in him, if you don't, you're going to be condemned. The word condemned there again is a terrible word. It's the word krino. It means judged. Judge is far better, and most translations pick it up. But again, I think the, the, the writers of the King James, and of course the New King James sprung off the, the King James, which I'm reading New King James this morning, they used this word condemn because it had such an effect to it that you were going to be separated. You're going to be eternally uh, apart from God. And not only that, you're going to be tortured. So you're, the, the condemnation, the condemning is what you wanted to avoid. So you better believe in him, right? Better believe in him. We're going to talk more about that. He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe is judged already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, what, what God is not going to judge anybody. Do you understand that? He's not going to judge anybody. You say, he's not? I've never heard that one before. What I've heard was, I'm going to stand before him and he's going to look and play before everybody a video of my life showing all of my failures, my frustrations, the, the sins, the deeds. No, 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 no. Watch what it says in John chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus said, for the Father judges no one. I just want that to sink in for just a minute. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You got it? Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. 
And then he develops it just a little bit further in John chapter 8 and verse 15. Now let this settle in. He said, you judge, this is important, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So in the fifth chapter of John, he says, the father judges no one's given all judgment to the son. Get over to the eighth chapter. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I don't judge anybody. See, where if the father doesn't judge anybody and the son doesn't judge anybody, where does the judgment come from? Let me come back to that 19th verse of John chapter 3. Because this is, this is vitally important. Hope you're getting something from this this morning. Because I'm telling you what, this dismantles this evangelical perception of what John 3.16 is about. And it's nothing like we've been told. So if, if the Father judges no one, Jesus judges no one, where does the judgment come from? He tells us in the 19th verse. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So who does the judging? Judgment is of our own making. It's of our own making. John chapter 3, verse 18 and 19 is about spiritual ignorance. It's, it's about spiritual blindness. It's about men not seeing the light and men, and men loving the darkness because they don't see the light. In the first chapter of John, he said that Jesus is a light that lights every man that comes into the world. But nobody's flipped the switch. The switch has not been flipped. So they're loving darkness rather than light because they know nothing of the light. Therefore, they, they judge themselves they judge themselves that they love the darkness rather than the light. They're ignorant of the kingdom. They're ignorant of a, an abundant life. They're ignorant of why Jesus came. John chapter 3, verse 16, 17, 18, 19 is a good news message that we should be proclaiming from the housetop to the world. Giving his son, God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, means he sent the Son into the world to show us the heart of the Father, to show us the actions of the Father. John chapter 3, verse 16, 17, 18, and 19 is not about some nefarious plan that God put into effect to torture his Son through some barbaric act so that he could offer us an invitation and an opportunity to be saved. When you read scripture, I, I, if I had time, I'd take you over to Jeremiah. Jeremiah tells us God never had any idea of sacrificing or torturing sons in fire. By, by no stretch of our wildest imagination did God ever see torturing anybody, let alone his son, and then call it an act of love. The execution of Jesus, again, this is man judging himself because he's in the darkness. He's, he doesn't understand the light. It's about spiritual ignorance, about spiritual blindness. And while we're walking that way, we, we're walking in the judgment that we place on ourselves. The execution of Jesus was an act of religious violence. It was the deepest, darkest part of man expressing himself. It was human hatefulness. And Jesus submitted to it to demonstrate how much the Father loved. That was the fulfillment of the unveiling of the Father's heart. For man to come at his worst, it was not, it was not God beating and torturing. This is what we were taught, that God was mad. He was incensed at the sin of humanity and that anger had to be expressed somehow. So he took his innocent son and just Beat the bejabbers out of him instead of you. You deserved it. But he, he had to take out this rage and this violence somehow. And so he, he, he totally took it out upon Jesus and Jesus let him do it. That's called, that's called the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. And you could, it's PSA. You can look it up if you want to really see the, the intricacies of it and what evangelical the evangelical church is palmed off as the love of God. That's nothing that, that happened there. In John chapter 3, verse 16, is not God looking to take his vengeance out on us by condemning us. I mean, really, wouldn't that be double jeopardy? If in fact, as the evangelical church teaches, that Jesus took all of the punishment, all of the sin, paid the total price for us, then our debt's been paid. So what is there for God to judge? 
if it's all been paid. Think about it. But we all cut our teeth on that. What would you think of an earthly father if he had a son that was just a real rascal, just disobedient, rebellious, did his own thing all the time, and he had another son that was, was, was good, was perfect, always obeyed, always did what he was supposed to do. So the father goes to the, to the son that is a good son by actions, behavior, and says, you know, I'm really angry with your brother. I'm really frustrated with him, but I, I love him so doggone much. I'm just going to beat you. I'm going to give you his punishment. I'm going to, I'm going to cut you out of the way. I'm going to give him your portion of the inheritance. I'm going to, I'm going to take away everything from you so that I don't have to from him. What, what kind of an abusive parent would you call it? What would you, in the parable of the prodigal son, what would you have thought of the father if he had went to the good son and said, I'm going to give you everything that belongs to the bad boy. I'm, he's down there. He's blown it. He's down with prostitutes. He's taken his inheritance, totally blown it away. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it. Not only am I, I'm going to, I, I should give it to you, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> Here's how we viewed God. I'm going to take the good boy's inheritance, everything he has, and I'm going to give it to the one that has been totally disobedient. What would you think of a father like that? Let me suggest this. That what happened was Jesus demonstrating the consummate love of the Father, the reconciliation of the Father. John 3.16 is about bringing us into spiritual light. It's about the love that the Father demonstrated in Christ. And he's revealing to us that nothing that man could ever do would separate us from that love. That nothing that man could ever do would, would, would make his opinion or his view of us any different. The Father was with Jesus every step of the way, experiencing everything that the Son experienced. Listen, it was, it was the hate, the sin, the anger of man that crucified Jesus. It was not the Father. In fact, he was in Christ, the Bible says, reconciling the whole world. He came to embrace us and encompass us in all of our darkness, in our worst times, the most belligerent, hateful, things that man could do. God was right there the whole time. Well, what about, what about when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was quoting from Psalm chapter 22. And I, I, I just want to read that for you. He was quoting from John chapter 1 and verse 22. Let me just read that for you. John chapter 1 verse 20. Every, every good Jewish boy knew by heart this 22nd Psalm. So when Jesus is up there, he's starting to quote the psalm. The psalm starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. He wasn't making this up. He was quoting Psalm 22. Now, if you read the entire psalm, the, John only recorded the first, first verse, first couple verses. If you read through the psalm, and I'm going to read this from the Passion Translation, when you get down to verse 24, it says this, For he has not despised my cries of deep despair. He's my first responder to my sufferings. And he didn't look the other way when I was in pain. He was there all of the time listening to the song of my affliction. Did you get that? Finally, he, he really sheds light on it. This whole idea that God forsook Jesus at the cross is, is absolutely ridiculous. All right, let's go back to John chapter 3, verse 16. Let me re read this for you again. John chapter 3 and verse 16. This is good stuff this morning. John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What, is, what does begotten son mean? What is begotten son? What we were taught is that it meant Jesus, at Jesus' physical birth, it separated him from everybody else. You know, he was the only one. He was the special one. He was, he was the one that was the apple of the Father's eye. It's, it's probably only begotten. It's probably best translated as the one and only, one of a kind. It points to original oneness. It, it, it points to the one without a second, the one from which all others came. Did you catch that? The only begotten is the one from which all others came. This, this is the consummate non-duality here. 
It's not you and Jesus, right? He is the only begotten. He is the son from which every other son has ever sprung. It's, there's no two here. There's no you and Jesus. You have been born of him. Everything came from the one. He is the only begotten. Paul got it. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And verse, uh, let me pick it up at verse 15. Colossians 1. He, speaking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If there's a firstborn over all creation, then there's got to be one that follows, right? For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Now watch, watch verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. That's your original design. He is before all things. You are in him. And, and, and he is the one that holds all things together. And he's the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that he might have the preeminence in everything. So he's the firstborn from the dead. You walked out with him. Verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that every son comes from the first son. There's only one begotten son. It's Jesus. You're never going to be the only begotten one. Your position is you're, you came from me. It's, it's not a, that's not, listen, this is not about Jesus' physical birth. It's about his eternal origin from which we all came. I, I wish I, I, I don't have time, but if I, I could go back and break down Colossians 1, 15, 16, 17. You can, you can do that. You can, you can go back and study that for yourself. And it's easy to see that he's the point of origination. He is the author of the whole thing. He's the author of all things. In him, all things consist. He, he was begotten, right? He, he, our existence came by reproduction from the only begotten. That's what I'm trying to say. Our existence came from, that, that's good. I, I phrase that good. Our existence comes from a reproduction of the only begotten. The one and only son gives us, because we're in him, he gives us the power to develop and to live our sonship out. We're in process of developing. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons. I think the word son there is the word technon. It's, a, it's, not, it's not completely mature yet. He's giving us the ability to mature. John 3.16 says it comes by believing in him. Believing in him. Believing is a word that we've really messed up. Believing is not a work. We've made it a work. Church has made believing a work. Here's what believing is. Listen, you ought to write this down. Believing is an effortless response to revelation. Believing is an effortless response to revelation. It's an awareness. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quickening of our spirit. It's when our spirit comes alive. It's when you see something, you can no, no longer unsee it, right? And, and you believe it. I believe the sun's going to come up tomorrow morning. You know why? Because every year that I've been alive, every day that I've been alive, the sun comes up. I believe it. I, I don't have to work it up. I don't have to work, try to work up this belief that the sun's going to come up. I'm absolutely confident and assured the sun will come up tomorrow because I have seen it. It's, a re, it's, it's the revelation that has dawned on me and I cannot unsee it. It means believing means to literally lay hold of what belongs to you. That's part of my inheritance. His son comes up tomorrow. I, 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 I lay hold of that because having the sunshine on me, sun, sun shines on the just and the unjust. There's no discrimination there. Rains on the just, the unjust. I, I lay hold of that because it belongs to me. The word believing in religion has been hijacked. We've told we have to believe. You don't believe then you're, you're headed to hell. You have to believe. So it's a must do. It's a must do. 
It, and it, we've, we've said that it means to accept Jesus into our heart. You got to believe you accept Jesus into your heart. You believe he died for your sin. You believe that he's resurrected. You repeat, you repeat a prayer and you say you believe. And you know why you said you believe? Because you wanted to escape religion's claims of eternal conscious torment if you did not believe. So you said you believed when in reality you did not believe jack squat. Nothing had been probably unveiled to you or revealed to you when you believed. Now I know there are some people that have had a real encounter with Jesus that the Holy Spirit has opened up their eyes apart from any prompting or sermon or song or emotional appeal. And you've, you see it, you've seen it. And because you've seen it that way, you cannot unsee it. You are convinced. It is an effortless response to revelation. I, I, I want you to get that this morning. Believing is an effortless response to revelation. It's because most of us did not really believe. We didn't, we were not persuaded. We had to do it over and over again. And, and we said, man, I hope I believed enough. I hope that believing went deep enough. We doubted because we had not, we had not seen it. When you see it, you'll believe it. That's, that's for doggone sure. When you see it, you'll believe it. When you see something out of scripture, you believe it. When the Holy Spirit enlightens you to something and you see it, you will believe it. And we said we, we believed down to church when we prayed to prayer and we got water baptized because we were afraid of what they said would happen to us if we said we didn't believe. See, believing is not believing things about Jesus. It's not believing what he did. A real believing is when you come and you entrust yourself to him. Okay? It's a, it's a surrender into the oneness for, for which he came to, to, to make sure you have. That's the abundant life. It, it, it's not a one-time conversion. Believing is not a one-time. It's not some kind of spiritual 4th of July with fireworks and tears and shouts of joy because I'm not going to hell and I'm going to heaven. That's not what believing is. I, I don't want to get too, too greeky with you this morning, but I want you to understand something. The believe in John chapter 3 verse 16 is a present active participle, okay? It, believing is a present active participle. That means it's an ongoing action. It would be better, better defined as believing. God sent his son into the world that whosoever is believing into him it's an it's the difference between swim and ain't swimming. It's the ing on a word. It's a it's a if you're swimming, I can't say that you swam because you're swimming. If you're doing something, you're in the process of working it out. You're in the process, and that, and that's that's what John three sixteen is about. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever is believing on Him. We'll have eternal life. What, what does that mean? That, that means as it happens to you, you experience the Zoe. You experience the very life of God. And, and the more that you see, the more that process unfolds. The more the process goes forward, the more you believe, right? And the more life you tap into. You're probably experiencing more life. I hope that every Sunday you come to the digital cathedral, you have an encounter you have a face-to-face -face with life himself. And I hope the things that we unwind here at the Digital Cathedral, like when we talked about born again last week and, and what this thing John 3.16 is all about, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The word perishing is not eternal separation. The word perishing means simply that there's a disconnect to life. But when you when you when you believe, when you're in a process, when you have seen, you're not no longer condemning yourself. You've you've seen that light. You have gotten that revelation. You're no you're no longer fearful. You're no longer looking at yourself and condemning yourself and judging yourself. The Father's not judging you. Jesus has never judged you. There is therefore no condemnation to, the, to those that are in Christ. You are in Christ this morning. Don't let somebody talk you out of it. Don't let somebody put a stipulation on you being in Christ. He placed you there. I love what Paul said. 
when he said, when it pleased the father who separated me from my mother's womb to reveal the Christ in me. See, that's when, that's when you get it. And when Paul saw it, there was no turning around for him, brother. When Paul saw it, everything that had been, that had been drilled into him, he, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, he was one sharp dude, believe me, he was educated. He knew the original languages. Paul, Paul was a learned man. He was not some hillbilly from the sticks. This guy was highly regarded. But when he had a confrontation with Jesus, when he had a, a, an experience, when he, had, when he saw light, all of a sudden now, he was a changed man. He was transformed. He was no longer trying to earn. He was no longer trying to persecute and destroy the church to get a favored position with God. It is a present, active participle. I don't know where you're at this morning in the journey. There, I think there's usually generally close to 3,000 people, two to 3,000 people that watch this teaching as, as it goes through the week. And some people are just starting. Some people's eyes are open just a little bit, a little bit peepers. Other people are, man, they are wide open. They, have, they are down the road they're quite a ways. Doesn't matter where you're at. It's a present active participle. So wherever you're journeying, wherever you're at in the journey, you're going to experience more. There's no end to this. Paul said it's going to take the ages to come for us to discover, listen, to discover the depths of God's love and God's grace toward us. We're not even scratching the surface. We're not even scratching the surface. We, we don't have a full understanding of what a new creation is. We don't understand fully what it means to be one spirit with the Lord. And if I were to begin to unwrap that for you from just from the level I know, and I'm not telling you I got the full manifestation or the full realization or revelation of it, but if I were just to tell you what I think, it really is encompassing a new creation how big and how strong and powerful it actually is and where that places us. And if I were to talk to you and do a teaching on being one spirit with the Lord, Paul says, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Man, we've shied away from this stuff. Present, active, participle. He that is believing is going to see more. He's, he's, he's more connected to life. He's not condemned. He's not perishing. He's not, he's not separated in his thinking anymore. He has, a full, he has a full connection. And the connection only gets better. It only gets stronger. So as this happens, now today, you don't experience perishing. I'm not perishing. You're not perishing. We are living on some level the Zoe life. He that is... He that is connected is not pure. He that believes, he that had his eyes open, he that has taken a rest into the Father, he that has come into that place of believing, which is a, um, uh, 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 it, it's not working, it's resting in what you have seen, it's resting in revelation. It's, it's an effortless response to revelation. That's what believing is. Don't think you gotta whoop up your believer. Don't think you got to whoop up your faith. Don't think you have to come to a certain level in standing before you can see. No, 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 no. The Father takes us right where we're at. He continually develops us. He continually drops deposits into us that open our eyes. He's about, he's about bringing you to circumstances, to situations in life, to where you start to see more. Your dependency grows stronger until this. John chapter 11, verse 26. Watch this. John chapter 11 and verse 26. Jesus said this. This is so rich. And this is where you're at this morning. I really believe this is where you're at. So this is a good word for you right now. He's, John eleven twenty six. Jesus said, Whosoever lives and believes in me, whosoever lives and believes in me, whosoever has seen enough that that effortless response to revelation is, opened his eyes and he's living in me. He's not just recognizing, he's actually living out his life as me. He's living the Christ is us life. He said, whosoever lives and believes in me will never die, never die. He's not talking about, he's not talking about, uh, you know, I think dropping your physical body. He's talking about the connection that you have already with eternal life. Eternal life resides in you. Can I tell you that you're never gonna die? You're going to walk from the kitchen into the dining room, but you're not going to die. It's a transition. 
It's a moving from one level of consciousness to another. As our eyes are open more today, we move closer to that, that level of consciousness until you know what's going to happen? Just watch in the next months and years that are ahead. You're going to see a merging of two, two spheres, heaven and earth together. And we're going to move back and forth from one realm, from one dimension. It's a level of consciousness. When you, when you pass from this side to that side, you're, you're more perceptive. Your senses are more alive. I believe that's you've dropped all the things that have held you down. Your physical ailments. Some of you have had some real physical challenges. I know that. When you move out of that body, you're going to leave the physical challenges, which is going to open up your perception. Your eyes are going to open. People whose eyes are not open today, don't worry about it. When they, when they transition over, when they walk from the kitchen into the dining room, their eyes are going to open. They're going to see like they've never seen before. All the scales will come off. You have an uncle, an aunt, a grandmother, a, a son, a daughter that you're worried about. Don't worry. Listen, don't worry about them. The Father judges no man. Jesus judges no man. When we move into that place, the judgment of ourselves stops. And when the judgment of ourselves stops, the condemnation stops, the guilt stops, and we start to see as we really should see. There, God does not put a time frame on Revelation. He doesn't put a time frame on us coming to the place. I, I believe everybody will, will receive Jesus as Savior. We will recognize that. We will, we will understand that. Maybe some not on this side, some that side. The reason people don't today is because they, they're loving darkness. They don't see the light. The light has not come on. For whatever reason, they have not been at a place where you've been where they've encountered light of such an intensity that they actually see it. But the revelation this morning is, He that lives and believes in me will never die. And again, that believing is an effortless response to revelation. Once you get that effortless response to revelation, you move into living in him. His life becomes your life. It's, it's no longer you're living for Jesus. We all did that. That was a strenuous life. It was life of works. Trying to please him. Living for Jesus. How, how many of you have heard messages about we need to live for Jesus? Then you got over to the place where he's living through you. So you want to make sure the vessel was clean. You didn't want to drink, smoke, cuss, chew, run with folks that do. You, you want to make sure your life was spolished. As again, it was a life of works. Life of works. And finally now, we've arrived at this place. We're beginning to understand John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so agape does. One-way love. Didn't want a response. Didn't want us to make a decision. Didn't want us to make a choice. He's made it for us. What he wants us to do is to open our eyes and see what we've possessed the entire time, but didn't realize it. And those that are walking in darkness today are in that position. The inheritance belongs to them. Everything that the Father has given to them is deposited within them, but they are not seeing it. They're blind to it. There's only two groups of people today. There's believers and there's pre-believers. There's no unbelievers. There's just pre-believers. People that are not yet believing, but they will. They absolutely will. So this non-action of trusting, but leaning back into him, leaning back into the Christ. See, that's, that's what faith is. Faith is an absolute trust in the one who promised it, being able to deliver it. And what we've talked about this morning the whole time, John 3, 16, 17, 18, 19, is all about God's promise to bring us out of darkness into light. He's given us the assurance. He's not going to judge us. He's not going to cast us aside, that he's always with us. We read where Jesus fully recognized that. Sometimes you may be crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're nowhere to be found. But then you move through that and you say, as he did in the 24th verse of Psalm 22, you were always there. You've always been with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When you're walking through that valley of the shadow of death, it's not an easy time. But David declared, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As you grow in this, here's what takes place. The distinction between you and the Christ disappears. And you really do see yourself living his life and his life living as your life. You become that drop of ocean in the entire sea. Every little drop of the ocean contains all the properties, all of the, all of the elements of the entire sea. But let me tell you something better than that. The whole ocean is contained in you, the drop. Everything that he is, you is. 
Everything that I am, that I am declared, I am, I am. And now today we're getting revelation as to just how big our I am is. John 3, 16, absolutely is the Christ is us life. Embrace it. Grow in it. Grow in that believing that we explored and looked at and defined this morning. Knowing everything that the Father gives to you, he gives to you as an heir and never again. Never, ever, ever again let anybody hoodwink you with John chapter 3, verse 16 to try to put stipulations and hoops that if you don't believe it, you're going to be condemned. We've taken that verse apart. You probably ought to go back and listen to this a couple more times and actually grasp the full meaning of what we got. And then study it out a little bit for yourself. You know, I've been 50 minutes. 50 minutes, I can't even do this justice. But I hope I've just opened you up a little bit more. Hope some new wine is poured in. And no wine skin didn't bust, but you've been flexible enough that you're able to handle it. Amen? All right, God bless you. Next week, we're going we're gonna to talk about a little bit of restoration of all things again. We're going to move a little bit further into that. So it's going to be good. See you Wednesday night at The Secret Place. And I'll go over some of this born again stuff. Unless a question comes in that I think, think is really applicable to everybody. And then we'll break that down on Wednesday night as well. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for your support, your prayers. Uh, without you guys, we couldn't do this. You really are an intricate part of the digital cathedral. This is not me. This is us. This is a community. This is a group of people that have come together. Most of us don't have a church, don't go to church. There's nothing in our area that would teach what we're teaching or even teach grace, uh, pure grace, finished work of the cross, inclusion, mercy that endures forever. And so we gather together Sunday and we go through a lot and learn a lot together. Thank you for being part of the team. See you next time at the Digital Cathedral.